chapter 5, we'll be focusing on verse 12 through pretty much 6, verse 2. Don't worry, I won't take up all of our time this morning. Um, We're going to read through this, and then we'll go back into prayer, wait for most of us to get there. And if you don't know where it is, you're a heathen, you're not allowed here. Um, All right. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for whom he died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us this word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. We then, as workers with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Father, we are so grateful for your word. Um, You could have easily, easily just sent your son and that was it. Uh, But instead, you chose to reveal him over time and through prophets and through um, the writing of your scripture. You've chosen to give us this great, beautiful story that we can read and ultimately become a part of. And Lord, I pray that today as we study your word in depthly, that your spirit would speak to us, individually and collectively. I pray that we would be moved, moved in the memory of this, uh, this great reconciliation that we've become a part of. Lord, I pray that these words would be of, mine, of yours, not of mine. I pray that your spirit would speak through me and that we would all have ears to hear myself included. It's in the great, powerful, redeeming, saving name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So before we delve too far in, whenever we study scripture, there's three questions that we should always keep in mind. We should always ask ourselves, what does this text reveal about God? What does this text reveal about people? And what does this text reveal about God's relationship to people? We live in a uh, society that's very focused on ourselves, and we all know that. Um, on individualism, and when it comes to text, our tendency is to read ourselves into the text. What is this saying to me? What is this scripture saying to me? Now, don't get me wrong, there's a time and place for that in your devotions, and even sitting listening to the word, the Lord may indeed highlight a particular scripture for your life, whatever you're going through, and he certainly can do that. But when we are intense studying the Bible, we do not want to ask, what is this scripture saying to me? We want to ask ourselves, what does this scripture say about God? What does this scripture say about people? And what does this scripture say about God's relationship to people? So we're going to delve into that, try and answer those questions today on this text. 
Um, but first, do a little background on 2 Corinthians. So there is a, or, or uh, 2 Corinthians. Um, but there is a, uh, you know, the two's there for a reason. This is Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church that we have. He wrote more, um, but we have the 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Um, both of these, especially 2 Corinthians, were written as a defense of Paul's ministry. Um, the first Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, he challenges the church. There was a lot of issues going on in the church. If you ever feel bad about your church, you ever feel bad about yourself, read 1 Corinthians. It'll make you feel better. Um, but there were a lot of issues going on in that church. When Paul wrote that letter, it, uh, some of the people had a kind of a sour taste in their mouth from it because he called people out. Um, a lot of the church repented, though. But now Paul's running into an issue that he also addressed in 1 Corinthians, but now he's addressing more heavily in 2 Corinthians, this idea that people are now attacking Paul's ministry from multiple sides. There are people who are attacking his ministry saying, hey, this Paul guy, he's not spiritual enough. He, uh, he doesn't have the visions and the dreams we have. Paul addresses this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Does that sound familiar at all? Do we ever hear that criticized of preachers today? Oh, they're not spiritual enough. The other, other side, some were saying that Paul faces too many trials to be a man of God. Does that sound familiar at all? That uh, Paul's faith isn't great, that he doesn't have the spirit of God because he, he, he faces too many obstacles. And he addresses this in chapter 11. And then, of course, he had the, the constant people fighting him, the Judaizers, the group who said, yes, faith through Jesus, but also faith in this. Um, you know, but also circumcision but also adhering to these parts of the Jewish law. Paul was constantly battling these three people. And, and, you know, I wonder, so you have people saying that Paul was not spiritual enough. You have people saying that uh, Paul was facing too many trials. And you have people saying that, well, Paul wasn't uh, following the law close enough. And I think it's important to highlight that because, hey, guess what? We see those same things today. We see those same things today. When you do the work of God, people are going to oppose you. People are going to oppose you. And Paul understood this. But Paul kept pushing on. Because you have to remember that not only is he battling these teachers, he is going through those various physical and emotional trials. You see in uh, chapter 2, verse 4, um, just a burden for the church. He says in 2, 3, And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Paul's got this great burden for this church, and yet he has to constantly defend his ministry on top of constantly being beaten, constantly being arrested, constantly being persecuted. This is all the things going on in Paul's life, but yet he takes the time to pen this letter, a second letter to a church who last time he visited things didn't go so well. Why? I think most of us would probably give up at that point. Right? Most of us would probably say, hey, look, I've taken enough physical damage. I've taken enough emotional damage. On top of this, they're listening to people who are saying, I'm not of God. You know, I'm going to throw in the towel. I'm going to walk away. But Paul doesn't. And he doesn't because ultimately, Paul understood three things. He understood the one who called him. Paul understood the circumstances of his own salvation. And he understood the difference between a life with Christ and a life without. And this allows him to see the seriousness of his ministry. So rather than asking, why wouldn't Paul? Paul instead asked, how could he not? How could he not? 
focusing back in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11 this time. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust well known in your conscience. So Paul's main motivation above all else was understanding this. Before he answered to any, any man, he answered to God. He says this in the first part of verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. We, we have a tendency to downplay what it means to fear the Lord. That it's, it's just reverence, it's healthy respect. And that's not, not what it is. You have to think that uh, we, we, we almost carry around this ashamedness of the holiness of God. That, uh, that uh, you know, God, we, we reverence him, we respect him, but we don't actually fear him. Uh, but I would assert to you that that's not what Scripture would tell us to do. Now, it's not the fear of like, well, if I stand before God, he'd kill me. He has every right to. But he wouldn't. And that's not the fear we're talking about here. We're talking about the fear that we see, we see present in the, uh, the life of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy is the Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me. For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that we talk about. This is the God that we should fear. In Ezekiel, just a couple books over, right after Lamentations, Ezekiel chapter 1, hopping over to verse 26. And above the firmament over their heads was the likeness of the throne. In appearance, like a sapphire stone, on the likeness of a throne was the likeness of the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around it. Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one speaking. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet, and I heard him who spoke. Sometimes I worry that we forget who we worship. Sometimes I worry that I forget who we worship. We have this great privilege to boldly enter in before the presence of God, but he is still God. Think of the fact of Isaiah and Ezekiel that they trembled. Isaiah laid down a curse on himself and on his generation. Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. That's all Isaiah could say. Ezekiel, when he sees him, he falls flat on his face. In Revelations chapter 1, when John sees Jesus, who he spent years on earth with, when he sees Jesus in his glory, John falls on his face as if he were dead. It reminds me of... Uh, of C.S. Lewis in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
the children, you know, go through the wardrobe. They uh, go into the land of Narnia. And the first people they encounter, first people they encounter, are the aptly named Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, because they're beavers. But uh, they start to hear of Aslan and the fact that uh, this, this great Aslan is here. And, and so Susan asks, well, who is Aslan? Is he a man? And this is uh, Mr. Beaver's response. And he says, Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the, is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Make no mistake, our God is not a safe God. He is holier than us. He is greater than us. And I think we've all experienced this type of healthy fear before. Uh, maybe not, uh, you know, we, we should, again, as believers, we don't have to experience in the fear that God is going to strike me down and kill me. But I think this fear, um, if you've experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. When, and maybe like, you know, at the Grand Canyon. And you stand out at the Grand Canyon. And no, it's not the fear that I'm going to fall off the Grand Canyon, Mom. But it's, it's that feeling and that realization that this is huge. This is vast. And I could fall off this edge of this cliff, and the Grand Canyon wouldn't care. It'd go on. It's that feeling that when you look out over the ocean, and you don't see any land for miles, and it's just blue. And it's just blue. And you realize, I'm, I'm nothing. That's this fear. It's this fear that, that makes us realize that... Uh, that, that we, are all, we all are far, far smaller than our puffed-up egos would have us believe. It's this fear that we indeed are as dust, and to dust we shall return. It's the realization that our best glory is of grass. Here today and one day, it's, it's going to wither. It's going to be gone. And how much more in contrast to the glory and the power of the King of glory who beckons us to come. And his glory has every right to make any imperfection burn an unquenchable fire before him. That's the God we serve, not this tame, simple God. There's a movie coming out. I don't necessarily have to address the title of it, but there's a movie coming out that downplays the holiness of God. Instead, it's just a nice little conversation. And we can have conversations with God. Again, through the blood of Jesus, we can boldly enter in his throne. But he is still God. He is still the creator of all. He is still the one who demands not just one holy, but a refrain of holy three times each time it's spoken. When you read the description of angels, how vast and crazy they must look, and the fact that they don't even want to set their feet before God, they don't even want to look at God. How much more should we tremble? And so today I pray for you. If, if you're a Christian, and again, if you've experienced this fear, you know what I'm talking about. You know it's not the kind of fear, a fear for your own life necessarily, but a fear of realization of your own life. And if you're not a Christian and you haven't experienced this, this fear, I pray you would, you would experience the fear of trembling and the fear of realization of your own sin. I do. I pray that you would not be able to sleep at night thinking of that fear. And if you are a Christian, I pray that the next time you come before God to pray and to worship, that your knees would tremble. That yes, boldly enter the throne. 
confidently into the throne, but remember who it is that we serve. Hebrews 12, 25 says, See that you do not refuse, refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of things that are being shaken, as of the things that are made, the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably, acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the God we serve. Our God is a consuming fire. And Christian, if we don't feel that way at times, then I pray we would stay on our knees until we do. I need that more in my life. I tend to take it too, too lightly, the God that we serve. And again, not in condemnation. We know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but in reverent fear, understanding that God indeed is a consuming fire. An understanding of this holiness of God gives us a clear picture of the plight of man, the separation between man and God, and causes us to say along with the Jews in Acts chapter 2 after Pentecost, when Peter preaches the gospel to them, it says that they were pierced through their flesh. They were pierced. And the response was, what shall we do? And may we say again with Isaiah, woe to me for I am a man of unclean lips and I live in a generation of unclean lips. May we say with Ezekiel, may we fall flat on our face, unable to rise. And when God beckons us, come stand, may we rely on his Holy Spirit to raise us. Going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul begins with this refrain of why do I reason with men? Understanding the terror of the Lord. Understanding who God is. This I begin with. This I begin with. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God. And I also trust are well known in your conscience. It's important to note that this is not a defense before God. 2 Corinthians is not Paul's defense before God. In fact... It's not even Paul's defense before the Corinthians. He says, hey, we're well known to God. I don't have to defend myself to God. God knows who we are. And in fact, deep down in your conscience, I know, I know that I don't have to defend myself to you. Rather, verse 12, we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. What Paul is basically saying here is that, uh, listen, I'm going to give you a defense for those who say these things about me, who say I'm not spiritual enough, who say I suffer too much, who say that uh, I don't follow the law closely enough. Look, I, I trust in your conscience. You already know that I'm an apostle of Jesus because you responded to my gospel. He says, this is not my defense before you. This is not my defense before God. But rather, when someone comes up to you and says, hey, that Paul guy, he's, uh, he, he doesn't have visions and dreams like I have visions and dreams. They can say, oh, no, but look at this. Oh, no, but look at Paul's heart. And that would be, that would be Paul's, I think, word of wisdom to us. If you want to know a true pastor, a true teacher, look at their motivation. That's why he says um, in, in verse 12, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance 
and not in heart. Paul's basically saying, hey, look, these guys, yeah, they might have it all together on the outside, but God looks at the heart. We know that from Scripture. We know that man is concerned with the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's what we should look at for our teachers. Consider, consider Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 1, when he says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is Paul's heart. Look, I didn't come here to make myself look good. I didn't come here to be in rulership over you. I came here knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's why I came to you. That should be the heart of every pastor, every teacher. Every single leader in the church should have that heart of the reason I serve in church, the reason I do the things I do in ministry is not for my own gain. It's not to make me feel righteous before God. It's not to give me a better standing before the Lord. No, it's because I know Christ and him crucified and that's all. That should be my cry. And that's why I appreciate uh, Jordan having us all take a step back this first month of the year to really analyze that. Because do we do that, church? Do we really honestly come to it saying, I serve in worship, I serve in sound ministry, I serve in hospitality, I serve in teaching, because I know Christ and him crucified. And that's all. May we analyze our hearts, may we be honest with ourselves, May we come to the Lord in simplicity. Continuing on in chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who, should, who live should no, live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. Notice here, Paul is not saying, I do this because it is my love for Christ that compels me. No, it is Christ's love that compels us. Certainly, out of Christ's love, we would, we would have our own love springing forth. And, you know, 1 John 4.19, we love because God first loved us. We love because he first loved us. But that's not the heart of the ministry. If you look at your own love, Christian, to serve the world, to serve each other, to serve a dying world, if you try and focus on your love for Christ, you will fail. There's no way around it. But, oh, if we look at the love of Jesus... His sacrificial and his great love. That's where our motivation comes from. That's where our motivation comes from. Let's take apart verse 14 a little bit more. That one died for all, therefore all have died. Paul's reasoning here is this. Okay, Throughout other scriptures, we see this over and over again. Christ died that we might live. You see it. Pretty much in every single gospel, you do see it in every single gospel. You see it in every letter of Paul. You see it in the letters of Peter. Christ died for all that we might live. Christ died so that people might live. Now then, if Christ died for all, the natural inference, the natural point of conclusion for us is that all men are dead and are in need to be made alive. That's Paul's argument. Christ died for all. Christ gave himself for everyone. Therefore, everyone must be in need of Christ. And scripture would affirm this to us. We know from Romans chapter 3 that there is no one righteous, not one. We talked about the holiness of God. And I beg you, if you don't know Jesus, search out the holiness of God. I know Jordan's own testimony, that's what it's rooted in. He would tremble when he read the scriptures because he understood who God was and who he was. And there, we, we, we should embrace that. We should embrace that. But there's no one righteous, not one. We know all of our righteousness 
is as filthy rags before the Lord. Our best righteousness is simple filthy rags before the Lord. We know Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. We are not deserving of any great gift. That's that, that, that's that phrasing in Romans 6.23. What's a wage? A wage is what you earn. I go to my job. I get paid for doing what I do. I earn a wage. Our payment for doing what we do is death. Think of, of God's warning in Genesis that if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. If being near God and being in God's presence, as Jesus said, to know God and to know Jesus, to know the Son, that's eternal life. Therefore, eternal death would be not knowing God and not knowing the Son. And indeed, our sin, because God is so holy, because God is so far beyond everything we can think, anything we could ever conjure up in our minds, because God is so much greater than that, our sin separates us and it causes death, a great spiritual death. And Paul's knowledge of the holiness, and I pray our knowledge of the holiness, would allow us to see clearer the plight of man and how desperately we need a Savior. What can a dead man do? Not much. A dead man can rot. A dead man can stink. And within a few hours after his death, a dead man can stink even more. But there's not much a dead man can do. What hope can he do to resurrect himself? None. He's dead. He can't breathe. He can't think. He can't act upon himself. That was our state, Christian. And that's your state, world. Dead. No hope. You can't bring yourself back up. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's death. That's death. So what hope do we have? We have hope that he who was alive would come down and die for us and raise again that we might raise in newness of life with him. Christ died for all. Therefore, all died. Therefore, all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Remember, church, the world is dead. And you were dead. You would not have come to know the Lord if the Lord did not come to you and say, come. You had no way of reaching up for eternal life. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. It is uh, two books back from 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians and then Romans. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. How then shall they call in him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace who bring the glad tidings of good things. Christ did not die for you, church, so you could have your walk with Jesus in the woods. That is not what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about me and Jesus and my walk in the woods. It's not. Remember, you were dead. So if he who brought you to life asked for you to do something, what right have you to say, no, nah, this is my life, God, I want to do what I want. Now, don't get me wrong. God will surely let you live for yourself. It will be uncomfortable, 
It will be miserable. It will be purposeless. But he will let you do it for a season. But Christ did not die for you that you could go on having your sweet little talks with Jesus in the wood. That is not what Christianity is about. And we have to be careful because there's a common strain of thought, and, I, and it's well-meaning, and I can understand why, why it exists, but it's this, this thought process that, well, if you were the only one who was alive, if you were the only human ever created, Jesus would have died for you. God's love for you is great, and from Scripture, perhaps we could infer that, but we have to be careful because that's not the reality. The reality is that you are not the only one who was living. You were not the only one who was alive. You were not the only one who needed salvation. The world needs salvation. And we have to be careful because we allow ourselves to dwell in this thought that Jesus would have died for me if I was the only one alive. Guess what starts to happen? You start to live as if you were the only one Jesus died for. I know because I do that. I do that. I focus so much on myself and on my pride. And I start to think, you know what? Jesus loves me so much. That if I were the only one living, he would have died for me. And you know what I start to do? I start to walking around like Jesus loves everyone, but he loves me more. And it's so easy to fall into that trap. Oh, it's so easy to fall into that trap. But Paul would challenge us. He would say, Christ died for all. Not that you would live for yourselves, but that you would live for him who died for you. Challenge yourself, church. Challenge yourself, Christian, to live for a greater purpose than yourself. Remember, God is holy. God is vast. God is holy, holy, holy. And we are not. And yet he rose us from the grave. He said, come and be my son and be my daughter. How glorious. So why would we continue living for ourselves? Why would we not live for others? But now we have to have the question, well, what does that actually mean to live for others? What does it actually look like? Paul's going to go on to explain that for us. Back in 2 Corinthians, verse 15 and 16. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him thus no longer. Remember, this is Paul speaking. The first time we ever see Paul was at the first death of a Christian saint, martyred for his faith. The first time we see Paul, we're introduced to him as Stephen is being stoned to death, and it says that those who are stoning him are throwing their coats at the feet of a young man named Paul named Saul. Paul's his Greek name. But they're throwing his feet, they're throwing their coats at the feet of this man named Saul who's saying, hey, this guy's speaking blasphemy, kill him. That's the first time we meet this guy. So what did, what did we then, affer- and remember, before Paul ever becomes a Christian, what is he doing? The time of his, his conversion, he's walking out to persecute more Christians. And he would say, that's hey, uh, and, and in fact, later in in Corinthians, and I believe he says it again in Philippians, that I was zealous for God. Now, my zealous was misplaced, but I was zealous for God. Why? Because he believed that Jesus was blasphemy. This was, this was his thought of Jesus. What was our thought of Jesus? I can tell you that growing up in the church, I'm thankful for it. Absolutely, it laid a great foundation for me. And I can tell you that my thought of Jesus was a simple help, that I was okay, or that I needed a Savior, but Jesus was just going to come help me, and I need to go, and that was minimizing Jesus. 
Maybe your thought of Jesus was that he's inconvenient. Look, I, I want to live my life how I want to live my life. Maybe that was your thought of Jesus. Maybe your thought of Jesus was a good teacher. Oh, that's selling you short. That's selling you short. And I, I want to ask you, how could a good teacher make the claims that Jesus made and still be good if he was just a teacher? He can't. He can't. Maybe your thoughts of Jesus were of Paul. Maybe, uh, maybe you're like, yeah, I, I get this. You know, I believe in God, but I don't know about Jesus. Maybe that was our thoughts. Regardless, Jesus raised us to life, and now certainly we view him in a new life. Light. We view him as the Savior of the world. We view him as God. We view him as that holy king who comes before John, and John falls as his face is dead. That's our view of Jesus. Now, Paul is saying, hey, look, my view of Jesus was that he was a blasphemer. But that view has changed. I see him now in a new light. And if we see Jesus in that light, and if there's a shift in our view of Jesus, there should be a shift in our view of others as well. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. No one. Interestingly enough, in the Greek, that phrase, no one, means no one. It actually means not even one. So let me tell you this. If you go on Facebook and you constantly bash and post, if you constantly say those stupid liberals, those dumb liberals, you know what you are doing? You are hindering the work of God in their life. It's simple. It's simple. These people need Jesus, and instead, they see a Christian who just calls them stupid and dumb. What does that do for the kingdom of God? Racial prejudices, prejudices in general, have no place in the church. Now, don't get me wrong. We should disagree. We should have conversations with people. We're not to come alongside them and, and simply usher them along and say, hey, all's good. No, no, but why do you attack them? I tell you why. Because you're building up your own righteousness. Because it makes you feel good. I know because I do it. I don't sit here and do this and, and point at your, my finger at you saying, how dare you? I, I point my finger at you while three point back at me and say, how dare I? I do this too. Remember, favoritism has no place in the church. We should not look at somebody who comes into the church and judge them and assume that God has a greater work to do in their lives than he did in our own. Focus back on yourself. And remember, remember that Christ died for all. All. We regard no one from a fleshly point of view. This is challenging to me because I wonder, and I have to wonder this, if... For say, let's, since it's current in the news today, let's say ISIS shows up at our doorstep. Let's say that we meet a, an extremist Muslim. What would be our response, Christians? Remember, this is, Paul's talking to people, and Paul would go and he'd preach to people who wanted him arrested and wanted him dead. Jesus would constantly talk to people who wanted him dead. What's our response? And that's a hard question to, to, to ask ourselves. It's a hard question to ask myself. We have to. If you look at someone who is of a different faith, and in your mind is, is, is that prayer of the Pharisee that Jesus talks about, you say, thank you, God, that I am not them. Thank you, God, that you did not make me one of them. And you are, you're building up your own righteousness. You're building up your own kingdom. It's so easy to take a heart and a passion for truth Say, hey, I want the truth of God to be above all else. And it's so easy to take that and twist it into building our own kingdom and making ourselves feel righteous. Because it feels good. 
It feels good in the flesh. It feels good to say at least. It feels good. You know what? Hey, at least I'm not them. At least I'm not gay. At least I'm not a Muslim. You were just as dead. You were just as dead. But there's a beautiful truth we need to hold on to here as well. A beautiful truth that the labels that once labeled us are no more. In verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is the glory of the gospel. Okay, the glory of the gospel is not, like I said, I used to have the understanding of Christ came to help me. That yeah, I was a sinner and Christ needed to die for me to save me. Now I have the potential to become righteous. No, that was not the goal of Jesus. Jesus is so much more than a simple help. He is, he is our sufficiency in everything. So listen, Christian, what other labels once held on to you? I think of Rahab the harlot. Do you think we're going to get to heaven and, and she'll be known as Rahab the harlot? No. No. So whether the labels you put on yourself are heavy, fat, broken, a thief, adulterer, whatever labels you would put on yourself, Christian, those are not your labels. You have but one label, and that is a new creation in Christ. All things have passed away, therefore all things have become new. Yes, we were once prideful. Yes, we were once dead in our sins. But this life has passed away. We've been raised to a new life. And we are a new creation in Christ. How glorious that is to think about. And how much more we need to focus on that. We're so tempted to put, I am a Christian and. But remember, Christ died for us that we could live for something greater than ourselves. I pray that in my own life, that in my own life, this, this idea of my identity in Christ would be the only identity I ever cling to. And right now it's not. You know, I, I have the tendency to hold on to other things. But I pray that it wouldn't be. And this was Paul's prayer too in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are of the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteous which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish." that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended these things, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Christian, 
Remember, these, these labels in Paul's life, these, were, these weren't necessarily bad labels. Paul was a Hebrew, and, and he was a Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Man, he had great lineage. But you know what he says? He says, hey, look, all these things, I kind of was rubbish. I kind of was rubbish. And, and, and all these things in my past life, the righteous things, the, my, my thought of righteous things, and the unrighteous things, I, I forget them. I put them behind me so that I may move forward toward the upward call of Jesus Christ. The call, the reason Jesus laid a hold of you. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Christian, whatever life you led before this, know this, it is dead, it is gone. It is buried with Jesus Christ when he died. And when he rose again, he raised you to new life, a new creation. You don't have to live in condemnation. And for those of you who don't know Jesus, there's hope. You may feel unworthy. You may feel broken. And these labels may be rightly placed on you, may be wrongly placed on you. But know this, that there's a sweet identity and there's a sweet purpose for your life. And it is the person of Jesus calling and beckoning you to come, all who are weary and all who are burdened, and I will give you rest. That's the call of Jesus. Leave the weight of your past sins behind. There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. Back in 2 Corinthians. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and had committed to us this word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This church is the heart of the gospel. Someone asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? And yes, we have the church answer. What it means to have a relationship with Jesus? Yes. But that relationship with Jesus brings reconciliation to our God. Remember, God is holy, holy, holy. And we are separated from him through our own choices, through our own sin. But the ministry of Jesus was this, to come and to reconcile the world back to God. Anytime you hear a sermon... Anytime you hear someone preach, anytime you read the word for yourself, be careful that you do not fall in the traps of the do's and the do nots. Now, they're certainly there in scripture, and we should certainly live as wise, but remember, everything that we do should have these echoes, these refrains, these heartbeats of the gospel in our lives. Why do I do these things? Because I know Christ and him crucified. Why do I do these things? Because I've been raised to new life. I am a new creation. Oh, Christian, that's a much more glorious way to live, and I can't do this because God said so. Now, he did say so. But remember, he enables you to live this. He has given you new life. He has reconciled the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Again, Christian, be careful that we do not live in our Christian bubble, and we do not live our Christian life as if God called me that I could just dwell with him. You do get to dwell with him, and it is glorious. But he also called you that you might become an ambassador for Christ. In this world, but not of this world. Imploring on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
it's important to note that this is our ministry. There's no plan B. God's, God's thought for saving the world is not the church and. It's the church. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, there are stories of, of uh, people in all Muslim countries seeing visions of Jesus. But you know what happens after they see visions of Jesus? God sends a missionary to preach to them. Think again in, in Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, that he says, how can they hear without being preached to? That's our ministry. We have been given this great and glorious ministry of reconciliation, the same glorious ministry that raised you to new life, that allows you to live sin-free, guilt-free. That same ministry has been given to us to preach to others, this great ministry of reconciliation. And that's what it really should be. It should not be a ministry applying people live a holy life Though that is a result. It should not be a plea of, hey, clean up your life. Though that should be a result. Those are God's works. Our work is to plead to them. Be reconciled to God through the person of Jesus Christ. He died for all, therefore all have died. Unbeliever, you are in need of a Savior. Christian, will you tell them? Will you tell them? Think about, again, what Paul has endured to this point, teaching to this church. The physical trials he's, he's bared up to this point. The emotional trials, the spiritual trials. The fact that everybody's attacking him on every side. Yet he continually preaches to the church. He takes the time to write them another letter. Why? Because he understands the severity of this ministry of reconciliation. And so, I think this is God's word for someone here today. If, if you've been praying for somebody who's near and dear in your life, don't give up. Don't give up on them. God is imploring them to be reconciled back to himself. And he's using you as a tool. My wife and I were talking about this the other day. Oftentimes, we don't know the ways that God is working in someone's life. There was a coworker of mine in an old job who I had talked to him about Jesus before. He grew up in the Bible Belt. Didn't want anything to do with God. And to be honest, I had written him off. I had tried to preach to him. Didn't seem like there was any fruit. Until a year later when he messaged me on Facebook and tells me, hey, I want you to know that I've received the Lord. And he's a missionary now. How crazy cool is that? Paul would say, too, that we are the fragrance of Christ wherever we go. To some, the scent of life. To others, the scent of death. Make no mistake, your faith the fact that you would say that, yes, we are all sinners, and yes, we all are, all are in need of a Savior, is definitely polarizing, and it's not an easy pill to swallow. But know this, that everything that you do is permeating Christ. I like the idea that, you know, we are, may, you may be the, the most Jesus that somebody will ever see. That you may be the most Jesus that your coworkers will ever see. They may never step foot into a church but they may see you reading your Bible at work. They may see you praying. They may see you lifting your head with joy. And we don't know the way that the Lord's working. His fragrance is going with us as we walk in the Spirit. And that work is being done. So don't give up. Don't give up. Implore them on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. And when it gets tough, remember. Remember your own story. Remember the glory of your own salvation. And how stubborn you were. So Paul gives 
this reason for why he does what he does. Listen, if somebody comes to you and challenges my ministry, this is what you tell them. Christ died for all, all died. The love of Christ compels me to do these things. I know the knowledge of the holy God. This is why I do these things. But now he's going to come back full circle and give us this glorious truth over again because we need it. I need it every single day, every single minute in my life. Remember, believer, once you, once you come to know the Lord, you do not graduate from the gospel of God. You do not move on to greater and bigger things. Rather, you delve deeper into the gospel. Verse 21. For me, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I spoke of this before, and I want to speak of it again, because I think it's a dangerous, dangerous thought in the church, and it's permanent in the church because it was permanent in my own life. This idea that Jesus died for you, taking part of your sins, and now living this Christian life is up for you. It's not. It's not. Because, you see, Jesus did not simply die and make a covering for your sins. You can imagine it like this. Let's say I have a house with a beautiful yard, gorgeous yard, and I have two dogs. I have a Chesapeake Bay Retriever named Harley, and I have a Beagle Boxer mix named Gus. And uh, Harley likes running around. Gus likes eating things. So let's say I had this big, beautiful yard. I let my dogs out there to play after a rainstorm. Tears the yard up. Completely destroyed. Now I have two options. Say this is uh, in the fall. Winter's coming. I'll say, eh, I'll wait for the snow. Snow will fall. Put a nice blanket covering on the lawn. It looks all nice and white. Hey, look, my lawn looks better. You know what happens when the sun comes out? That snow melts. My lawn's still the same. Now, I could also, uh, you know, find somebody who does lawn care, have them come in, relay sod on my yard, you know, reseed my lawn, aerate my lawn, help maintain it, bring it back to new life. These are the two thoughts that I commonly see with the gospel, and only one of them is correct. Only one of them is correct. You see, when Jesus came and he died for your sins, it was not a simple covering of your sin. It was so much more than that. He took your sins and he removed them completely from your life. But he didn't stop there. He also said, hey, my righteous deeds were done for you. You take them and you bear them in your own name. It's crazy. I don't deserve that. You can imagine it again like this. Imagine there are two books on the table before me. One is the life and times of Nick Morrison. One is the life and times of Jesus Christ. You open up the life and times of Nick Morrison, what you see is pride. What you see is rebellion to my parents. What you see is a, an anger and a bitterness towards my sister and my brother. What you see is a, a neglecting of my wife. What you see is impurity. What you see is a, an idea that I'm better than everybody else. It's an awful, awful book to read. I don't recommend it. That's what you see when you open up the life and times of Nick Morrison. Then on the other side of your table, you have the life and times of Jesus Christ. And you open it up, and what you see is holy act after holy act. What you see is redemption story after redemption story. What you see is perfection after page of perfection after page of perfection after page of perfection. There's no end. It's glorious. What Jesus did when he came and he died on that cross was not simply to say, hey, throw that book away, Nick, you can start fresh. That wouldn't have been enough. What he did was he came and he picked up my book, The Life of Times of Nick Morrison. 
and he ripped the cover off. Placed it down in front of me. Then he picked up the life and times of Jesus Christ, ripped the cover off, and he put it down in front of me. And he said, Nick, I will carry this for you. I will not just make you new. I will give you all things. You simply need to accept it. And in that moment of faith, when I said, Lord, I accept your work, he took the cover of the life and times of Nick Morrison and he placed it on the life and times of Jesus Christ and he sealed it. So now, when you look at the book of the life and times of Nick Morrison and you open up that book, what you see is perfection after perfection after perfection because of the work that Jesus did. His righteous acts imputed to me. When Jesus died on that cross, what he was saying is he said, Nick, I'm going to take your book and I'm going to take the life and times of Jesus Christ. He slapped that cover on there. And he said, I'm going to take this to the grave with me. It's gone. So when the Lord looks at me now, he does not see a clean book with some mistakes in it, some clean parts in it. No, what he sees is his life and times of Jesus Christ. Imagine a scene in the courtroom, and Steve talked about this, that this idea of righteousness is a standing before the Lord. It's a legal standing before the Lord. Imagine in a courtroom, and I'm sitting there under the weight of my sin, and across the way is the accuser, the enemy himself. And he's saying, look what this Christian did. Look how selfish he is. Look how stupid he is. Look how he neglects his family. Look how he shows hatreds towards the world. Look at him. And you call him your son? He's disgraceful. He's nothing like you. And the prosecution sits down. That's their opening argument. That's their closing argument. It could go on and on and on. And I have no defense. But I have a great defense attorney. He's the person of Jesus Christ. And his defense before the Lord is not to stand up and say, hey, no, I mean, he's trying. He's making progress. Let's be patient with him. No, he simply stands in front of me. He raises up his hand and he says, Lord, look through the holes in my hands. I did this for him. And the courtroom's adjourned. That's the glory of the gospel. That is him becoming sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. It's so much more glorious than our feeble minds make it out to be. Christian, you are in holy standing before the Lord. Unbeliever, right now you stand in condemnation, but there is hope for your soul. There is purpose for your life. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I am not ignorant enough to believe that everybody who comes to church knows the Lord. I'm not ignorant enough to believe that everybody who has been to the church, grew up in the church, knows the Lord. I'm not ignorant enough to believe that because I was ignorant enough to be in the church and not know the Lord. And so... Perhaps this is your time, this is your moment. You don't have to, I'm not, I'm not going to ask people to raise their hands. I'm going to ask people to stand up. But I would ask us all to go home and consider ourselves. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time to believe. This is the Lord calling out to your life, both Christian and unbeliever. For the unbeliever who perhaps poses as a Christian as I once was. This is the Lord reaching out to you and saying, you're weary, you're heavy laden. You've placed those burdens on yourself. I died for you. To the unbeliever who lives under 
their own sin, the Lord would beckon you. This life of partying, this life of regret, this life of feeling purposeless, trying to mask it with charity events and with all these, uh, all these social media actions, all this social media justice. Says, Look, you don't have to do that anymore. You can come and be reconciled to me. And I would implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, today is the day of salvation. Today is the acceptable time to believe. I ask that our burdens would be laid before you. We praise you for the glorious work that you've done. I pray that we would not forget that you've died for all, therefore all have died. I pray that we would not forget this glorious ministry of reconciliation. Lord, I pray that you would help me to render my own heart and turn my own sackcloth and come before you in humble repentance and glorious light of the grace you've given me. I thank you for your reconciliation in my own life. I thank you for the truth of your gospel, that it was not enough to simply take my sins, but you also imputed to me glorious righteousness. And that I don't deserve it. I don't. And Father, I pray for those who, who don't know you, whether they hear this message or not. I pray for those that are on our minds right now as we think of those who don't know you. I pray that we would not give up, that we would continue to implore them to be reconciled to you. Your grace is glorious. Your love for us is so much bigger than we all can imagine because you are holy and yet you beckon us to come. So Father, may your spirit go with us this week. May we rest in the work that you've done, and may we rest in, in you, and may we remember the call in our lives to be ambassadors of Christ, to view no one from a worldly point of view, but rather to implore the world on your behalf to be reconciled to God. Amen.